Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. From Ted Cruz's speech announcing he was running for president. It is a time to reclaim the Constitution of the United States. To Eamon Bundy talking about his armed occupation of a federal building in Oregon. Our purpose, as we have shown, is to restore and defend the Constitution. To President Obama talking about his executive orders on gun control. The recommendations that are being made by uh, my team here are ones that uh, are entirely consistent with the Second Amendment and people's lawful right uh, to bear arms. It seems as though the Constitution of the United States is under daily scrutiny in modern American life. And of course, it should be. It's the foundation of our modern system of government. But just as obvious as the difference between the white powdered wig wearing world that the founding fathers lived in and our smartphone world of today. The document itself is nearly 230 years old. It's been decades since it was last amended. It was written by men, yes, all men, who didn't meet that often because riding a horse to get together takes a really, really long time. It was written at a time when a real debate took place over how to count slaves as part of a state's total population. They decided that slaves count as three-fifths of a person. When a well-regulated militia meant guys with muskets, and the idea of an actual tyrannical king was kind of fresh. Today, where we live, we'll explore how the Constitution works today, whether this foundational, venerated document that's been seen as a model around the world is so flawed that it needs to change. And if so, what changes would make sense? Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us in our studio here in Hartford is uh, Rennie Falco. She's Associate Professor of Legal and Policy Studies at Trinity College. And it's always good to have a constitutional conversation with you, Rennie. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Also with us from the studios at Yale University in New Haven is Akhil Reed Amar, who is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. His book, America's Constitution, A Biography, is something that we took uh, quite a look at in order to prepare for today's program. And thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it, sir. Hi, good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So I'll start with you, Professor Amar, and then, and then I'll turn to Rennie. And I just want to get some of the big questions out of the way. And I guess really what, where I want to start is, do you view the Constitution as a document that we need to continually interpret for its original meaning, like really trying to figure out what these guys meant back in the late 1700s, or as a kind of a living, breathing document that is supposed to change with the times? Well, it's both. And let's begin, actually, by reminding ourselves that it's not just guys, it's gals, too, because our Constitution, very fundamentally, has been transformed uh, by amendments. We've made amends for some of the sins of the Founding Fathers. <laughs> and, and those amendments have involved blacks as well as whites, women as well as men. Let's just take woman suffrage, which is, in my view, a very big deal. Um, it's a doubling of the franchise. Without women's suffrage, I've got three words for you, President Mitt Romney. You won among the men, okay? You take away the three women on the Supreme Court, Obamacare fails four to two because that's how the men voted rather than prevails, five to four. You call it Obamacare, and I do too. We could call it Pelosi Care because it's a female Speaker of the House who got that bill through the House of Representatives. So that's just an example of um, 
uh, one amendment. There are many others. Uh, uh, the Tea Party folks, the states' rights folks, the, the Oregon militia folks sometimes don't understand that um, after the Civil War, we amended and re-amended and re-amended the Constitution, and every last sentence of those Reconstruction amendments is Congress shall have power, not Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. That's the First Amendment. Um, that's reflecting anti-federalist Tea Party states' rights, localist sentiment after a revolutionary war that was waged against an imperial center. But that's only the beginning of the story, not the end. And, and yes, I do want everyone today to take very seriously our history. It's, it's distilled in the Constitution, but it's emphatically not just a history of the founders. It's a history of the amending, uh, not just founding fathers, but uh, amending um, uh, uh, mothers and daughters. This, and, and of course, this, this all makes perfect sense, and this is all true, but so much of the conversation that we seem to have today, Professor, is about this original document. Yes, of course, all these amendments have happened over the years. And yes, many people have shaped them beyond just the founding fathers who were indeed slave-owning fathers, many of them. But the fact is, is that so many Americans seem to refer to this original document as the foundational document, that that's really where so much of this conversation in America starts today, doesn't it? No, only if you're, with due respect, um, completely superficial. Let's take the <laughs> Bill of Rights, which everyone talks about. Not a, I want all of your listeners just to think in their mind, of some important Bill of Rights case, whether they agree with it or not, um, some, some big case about liberty and equality. So just take one second to think about it. Okay, now, here's the point. Almost none of the cases that your readers or your listeners are thinking about is actually a Bill of Rights case. The cases they're thinking about are Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Wade, Gideon versus Wainwright, New York Times versus Sullivan, Lawrence versus Texas, um, Miranda versus Arizona, um, Escobedo versus Illinois, Obergefell. Not one of those is a Bill of Rights case. We call them Bill of Rights cases, but every single one of those cases involves a state or locality, Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, and the Bill of Rights originally only limited the federal government. It had a Tenth Amendment. It begins, Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. So people might think they're talking about the Founding Fathers. They are not. They are talking about Mr. Lincoln and his generation, whether they are aware of it or not. The Second Amendment, the strongest argument for an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, actually comes from the Reconstruction and not the Founders. The NRA itself was founded after the Civil War by a group of ex-Union Army officers. So in fact, whether we say Founding Fathers or not, what we do day in and day out is Reconstruction and the 20th Century Amendments, like Income Tax Amendment, Direct Election of Senators, Women's Suffrage. Uh, Rennie Falco, so uh, f follow up on that. <laughs> okay, I, I have nothing uh, to disagree with here, but I think, I think an important point is, is um, that, that the controversies today, I think, are separate from what we really need to understand. And I'm not saying the controversies are not important, but it seems to me what Professor Amar said initially is absolutely correct. We need to have an understanding of what the framers wrote. I think it's a little more difficult to actually discern what the framers as a group intended since they clearly all did not agree with one another. In other words, the, con the Constitution itself came about as a result of compromise. There is nothing in the Constitution of note that didn't at some point have to be debated and ultimately um, resulted in compromise of one kind or another. And I think that's really important for people to understand that, it, that even at that point, it was not a single-minded document 
that had one specific meaning and no other. And in that that idea of compromise was actually happily embraced by those who wrote it, that, that, that compromise is actually something that was seen to make a stronger document. And also of necessity, because you had disagreements. And the f- people who were at work, our framers and founders, understood that in order to have a document that would be ratified by everybody, no one side could get everything that it wanted. And I just think that's a very important point to keep in mind because I think sometimes we talk about this as though there was absolute agreement at the beginning, and there was not. Professor Mark, could you pick up on that? Because this idea of compromise is, is another thing that seems to be lost in our current political discourse when we talk about the Constitution or, frankly, anything else. Uh, yes, and and Rennie makes an outstanding point. Here's uh, um, the the flip side. Just uh, uh, so not all, com- and I'm a big believer in compromise, uh, but not all compromises are in the end even decent. We could think about the three fifths compromise that you alluded to, and the compromises with slavery. Here's a really interesting fact um, about. Um, the Reconstruction, which I've, I've mentioned, because I really do think we live in Lincoln's house. The house that the framers built fell. It was a house divided against itself because of slavery, and it fell. We call that the Civil War. We're now in the 150th anniversary, really, of, of the end of the Civil War, um, Lincoln's death. And um, here's what's really amazing. Uh, let's take the 14th Amendment, this great amendment that says states actually have to abide by fundamental rights. So every one of the cases I mentioned involved states. Gideon versus um, Rainwright is is Florida. Griswold versus Connecticut. Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Miranda versus Arizona. So our Bill of Rights today limits states in, in really important ways. And liberals and conservatives both agree that the, the 14th Amendment actually should limit states in all sorts of ways. Every single Democrat in Congress voted against the 14th Amendment. Every single Republican except one person, his name was Joe Lieberman. No, that's just a joke. But every single Republican except one voted for it. Every single Democrat in Congress voted against it. And yet today's was a total partisan vote, every bit as partisan as, say, on Obamacare. And yet today, we all basically, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, claim the 14th Amendment. So that's interesting. If you have questions or thoughts about the U.S. Constitution and how it is relevant today, what thoughts you have about how it might change to, I don't know, be a more modern document, you can email us where we live at WNPR.org. Let's go to Fred, who's calling from Glastonbury. Hi, Fred. Go ahead. Good morning. There's an interesting thought that uh, occurred to me in connection with the Second Amendment. First of all, the, the Constitution is not written in stone. All you have to do is go to the Library of Congress. You can actually see the document under glass. But there is language uh, of one of the founders, and that is Thomas Jefferson, that is written in stone. If you go to his memorial, you can see this language right behind his statue. And what that language quotes is that Jefferson, while he didn't believe in frequent changes in constitutions or in laws, he did believe that, that, that constitutions did have to change with the times. And he likened it to the idea of a man attempting to wear boys' clothing. And I would suggest to these people who think that the Second Amendment is completely enshrined and inviolable and, and unchangeable and, and uh, eternal, um, they, they think about the fact that in Jefferson's world, Jefferson never would have tolerated the kind of wholesale slaughter that we see on today's streets in America based upon some sacrosanct notion of the Second Amendment. Fred, thank you very much. Renny Falco, what do you say to Fred? Well, I, I do not disagree. 
Uh, Jefferson was certainly an interesting person, and he did have ideas about whether or not every generation should have the opportunity to rethink the fundamental laws. And, you know, the Second Amendment um, is obviously very controversial, especially today, right? The president is going to speak about it. And I think there's no question um, that when we think about any of the amendments to the Constitution or for that and, and understand what they really mean, you know, beginning with the First Amendment, no amendment is absolute. In other words, it is not an absolute prohibition of any kind and that in every amendment as they have been interpreted by the courts, uh, the courts and the, and the justices have been called upon to make interpretations and to understand what the amendments actually mean. And I would argue, you know, at different time periods in American history. So if you go back to the early part of the 19th century, we didn't have a lot of cases dealing with free speech. You fast forward to the beginning of the 20th century and you did. And I think you have to place all of this in context, the Second Amendment included. Uh, Professor Amar, what do you say? So... um uh, let's remember a few things about Jefferson. One, he lives and dies. Uh, so I, he's aged poorly um, uh, <laughs> in the last 30 years. He, he lives and dies a slaveholder. He doesn't free his slaves. He founds a pro-slavery party that is almost the death of us. He says lots of actually silly things. Um, he's actually a big gun guy, in fact, in revolution and talks about the, the tree of, of liberty needing to be, you know, um, manured with the blood of, of patriots and tyrants. So, so I'm not so um, – Jefferson is up there. He's in the pantheon, but let's put him in perspective. I actually think that once we put something in the Constitution, whether it's the First or the Second Amendment, we should take it seriously. It was a disgrace that um, uh, the First Amendment protections were not actually uh, followed for for much of our history. Um, So that's a bad thing. Once we, the people, put something in the Constitution, the question is what we've put in, but once we put it in, we should try to follow that or amend it away. Now, here's actually on the Second Amendment the, the good news. The good news is that the Second Amendment, rightly understood, is perfectly consistent with a very wide range of reasonable gun regulations. Now, if you go around saying the Second Amendment means nothing at all, which some of my friends are inclined to do, that's a big mistake because then – People on the other side, the gun lovers, get their backs up and they're going to resist even the most moderate and reasonable regulations saying, well, that's a first step on a slippery slope that leads all the way to total confiscation. The best argument against that is no, it doesn't. The Second Amendment doesn't allow total confiscation of all handguns everywhere. Justice Scalia is not going to let that happen. The Supreme Court is not going to let that happen. The Second Amendment does protect a right of ordinary people to have an ordinary handgun in their home for self-protection. But once we've secured that basic core right, let's talk about all sorts of reasonable regulation that we can have that won't unravel the thing completely. A background checks, limits on the kinds of weapons, the kinds of ammo, the amount of ammo waiting periods and the like. Should that reasonable regulation take place in the form of an executive order? Well, this executive order, which I haven't read in great detail yet, um, but uh, I've I've studied it a little bit over the last 24 hours, at least what's been said about it, it seems consistent with the congressional statute that's been passed and executive authority to implement 
all sorts of laws with regulations that a next administration is free to change. Regulations aren't the same as statutes. They're easier to make um, by a president. They're easier to unmake. I don't think they violate anything in the Second Amendment. If Congress had passed them by a statute, I think they would be easy and obvious. So the only question isn't really a Second Amendment question, but a separation of powers question. Does the president have the ability to do this on his own, or does he have to get a congressional statute? And that requires very careful examination of the regulation and the congressional statute. What, from what I've seen, he's acting in a way that's not prohibited by the statute. And, and uh, when he says we're going to throw more resources at and uh, we're going to um, have a better database, we're going to be quicker ab- about all the, um, these uh, things, um, those, that's what executives do is they ex- execute, they administer the laws and, and prioritize enforcement. Again, I think I would agree. At least in terms of what I've read, I don't see anything that that raises a constitutional question. We're in studio today with Rennie Falco, who's an associate professor of legal and policy studies at Trinity College, and Akhil Reed Amar, who's a Sterling professor of law and political science at Yale University. We're talking about the Constitution of the United States. We're going to answer some of your questions and take some of your ideas about how it might need to change with the times. That's coming up where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about the U.S. Constitution, how it's changed and how it's not over the course of some 230 years. We're talking about amendments and we're talking about the ways to read the Constitution with Rennie Falco from Trinity College and Akhil Ridamar, who is from Yale University. His book, America's Constitution, a biography, is something that we've been looking at to prepare for today's conversation. I want to get some voices into the conversation, including Ben from Wallingford. Hello, Ben. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I wanted to note that most of the things, uh, the controversies around the Second Amendment are supported by the gun corporations that are just want to sell more weapons. So one of the ways that we need to amend the Constitution is to put in an amendment to uh, say that corporations are in people and that elections should be publicly financed so that we can get the corporations out of the elections. And this can be done through a constitutional measure of having all the states uh, have a constitutional convention and ratify this amendment. It it could happen, Ben. It doesn't seem likely to happen, though, does it? Well, I think it is. It's going eventually going to happen. We've already had four states 
that ratify this. There was an effort in Connecticut last year to do it, and um, all, every state's doing this, and this is something that people want and people are fighting for. So I think we can get this amendment as long as we get all the states on board and go around the federal government where all the election spending is done. Ben, thank you very much for the phone call. So, Professor Amar, uh, Ben wants to change the Constitution to say corporations are not people. What do you say to him? I say he's got a good idea that we need campaign finance reform, and he's got a very bad idea with almost everything else that he said, with due respect. (laughs) So the New York Times is a corporation. Yale University is a corporation. You cannot um, uh, shut down corporations, and even if you could, there are rich individuals. I happen to know billionaires. They're good people to have as friends, Um, and (laughs) and so even – and they're not corporations. And so even if you shut down the corporations, there are still the Koch brothers um, and and, 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 and other billionaires out there. That's not what's going to solve the problem, but that we do need serious campaign finance reform. Let me also tell you that when people take out ads, the ads actually have no effect – if ordinary voters actually say, I don't believe that. It's one person, one vote, secret ballot. Mitt Romney spent more money he lost. Meg Whitman ran for the governorship of California. She had more money. She's a gazillionaire. She lost. Uh, uh, Jeb Bush has spent um, $40 million. He's not doing so well. So um, uh, uh, Linda um, McMahon, McLean, um, she M- ran McMahon, twice yeah. for yep. McMahon, twice for senator. She re- spent a ton of money. The more money she spent, the less I liked her. I voted against her. So did other people in Connecticut. One person, one vote, secret ballot. And on election day, Ben is right. Corporations do not and never should vote. That's individual people. But I don't think we can actually shut down political discourse by telling the New York Times what editorials they can run or not, or news coverage, or CNN, um, or individuals for that matter. But we need serious campaign finance reform. McCain-Feingold was not it. It was a joke. And it was rightly struck down by the Supreme Court. So, so Rennie Falco, is is campaign finance reform something that the professor says we, we need? Is that a constitutional issue in any way, shape, or form? Well, I think it becomes a constitutional issue when you have parties who challenge the law. Um, and Professor Amar believes that it was a good challenge last time. But I'm, I'm concerned um, that given you know, just the state of polarized America, it's, it's very unlikely that we will get that kind of legislation passed. I, I just don't see how it happens. Yeah. Linda McMahon spent $100 million over the course of two campaigns, and it didn't get very far. Uh, let's go I, to... And I would go just, ahead. Yes. I would add one other thing. It yeah. will be very interesting to see what happens in this election as we look at Donald Trump, right, who is, you know, so far has gotten so much free advertising that he hasn't had to spend all that much money at all, right? Just he's an advertisement for himself, Norman Mailer would be would be very pleased with that, I take it. Um, and so I think this election is going to raise some really interesting questions in terms of how how money is spent and whether or not it matters and the role of social media and how that mm-hmm. changes things. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to, to the phones here. Let's see what uh, Victoria in Litchfield has to say. Hi, Victoria. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Yeah, I want to call. I'm originally from Oregon. Uh, I'm very concerned about the takeover of these guys from another state taking over any part of the, a state that's not theirs. Uh, and the other thing I want to say about that is that uh, all of these these ranchers who basically want free land, they don't want to buy it, they don't want to lease it, they just want it to be free, that that's a kind of welfare that if it were some other kind of people or a minority, everybody would be up in arms about. But the fact that it's white guys with guns uh, that they're getting away with it. Uh, I'm extremely upset. I think they should have gotten uh, the the Bundy situation 
should have been solved back then, and because they didn't, they think they can go to Oregon and do this. Uh, and the, the other solution is if the people of Oregon want that land, they could probably buy it, except the problem is they're not going to want to pay for it either. You're not going to find taxpayers in these states who are willing to pony up and buy the land so that they can then have, quote, the freedom to do whatever they want, which they aren't going to have anyway because of the some of the environmental laws. Well, That's all I want to say. Well, Victoria, thank you very much for the phone call. And, and, and Rennie Falco, I, maybe I'll, I'll let you take a first crack at this. This, this notion that we're hearing from uh, Oregon sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, these gentlemen have occupied uh, some federal property. And as we heard earlier, uh, their purpose is to restore and defend the Constitution. They believe that the federal government has overreached in the way that it has claimed land rights throughout the West, not just in that part of Oregon. Um, you hear what Victoria is saying. How does this play into our conversation today? Well, I think that this is a refrain that we often hear. I think that the federal government um, often is demonized. And actually, in the little break we had, we were talking a little bit about that, that the difference between, you know, what goes on in the states and the authority that the states have due to our, you know, federal system, uh, the authority that the federal government has. But it seems to me that if you've got Ted Cruz telling these people to cool it, it's probably not the strongest case <laughs> that one could make. Um, but I think that it resonates with people because, I mean, from my perspective, I think that the federal government has been demonized, and especially during the Obama administration, that somehow the federal government is responsible for all the things that go wrong. And again, I'm not sure that's really the case. Okay, so maybe not all the things that go wrong, but Professor Amar, this notion that the federal government in large swaths of the West is seen by many people, including people who aren't carrying guns right now in Oregon, but just everyday people who who think the federal government has exerted its authority over states' rights and individual rights too much. How does that play into how you read the Constitution and the role of the federal government? It takes us right back to what I said before about the importance of Reconstruction and the amendments. I'm from the West. I'm from California, and I agree with everything that Victoria said, except she said, and these guys aren't from Oregon. To me, that's not the issue. If there were Oregonians who did this with guns, um, uh, I'd be equally offended. And, and Oregonians, since I am from the West, sometimes sort of react a little bit against outsiders. There are all these posters, don't Californicate Oregon. I'm a former Californian. So, so that's the one part that I would disassociate myself with. But yes, people with guns do, should not um, uh, take arms against a duly elected government, and the federal government is duly elected now. If you just talk about the founders and Thomas Jefferson and all the rest, those are guys who took up arms against a central government. And so you're going to actually, if that's all you focus on, get it slightly wrong. Now, the difference, of course, is they took up arms against a king that no one voted for who was a thug and a parliament that no one voted for. But, you see, they took up arms against a central government. And that's what these Bundy types are, are doing again. But once you understand that our constitution was amended, the founders' constitution failed, and it failed because people took up arms against a duly elected guy, a tall, skinny lawyer from Illinois named Obama. Oh, I mean Lincoln. Um, so, and, and he was assassinated, you see, by a white guy with a gun who was an extremist, a, 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 a reactionary. And once you understand that our constitution today is a constitution that was amended in the shadow 
of all of that, with the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, all of which say Congress shall have power. And after the Civil War, we realize states aren't always the solution to every problem. States have misbehaved. There are reasons we have a federal government. And no, you don't get to take up arms against a duly elected government. That's been there, done that. That's what the Civil War is about, which is why I'm so emphatic that actually our constitutional conversation has to include all the amendments, because that's actually, we live in Lincoln's house. Uh, the house that the founders created fell in important ways. And if these folks had been taught the, th- uh, the whole Constitution and not just the Jefferson militia um, aversion, you know, anti-central government version, they would be a little less likely to do these k- kooky things. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. But I, I guess what I'm thinking as we keep going back to the Civil War is that even though those amendments were passed, I don't think that the controversies um, that gave rise to the Civil War were necessarily resolved. In other words, I think yes. that, you know, that we, this is something worth exploring. Absolutely. We're still living in the legacy of it, but here's why we are, because we don't every day insist that when we say the Constitution, we mean not just the founders, but the amenders, Lincoln's generation, the Reconstruction. And if every day we said that, we'd actually make clear that the Constitution is actually on our side and not on the Bundy side of the world. So is there a case to be made, though, that as much as we can say that the world post-Lincoln or of Lincoln is is so much different than the world of the father, founding fathers that we made these amendments and that it changed the Constitution for, for the better. Professor, would, isn't it fair to say that the world has changed at least that much, if not 100,000 times more since Lincoln's day, that we are engaged in foreign entanglements in a way that we never were in the past. We fought a series of wars uh, elsewhere that have changed the way that we think about how we uh, project military might and how we decide to go to war. Our method of communication is so vastly different than it was before that that Lincoln, I'm sure, couldn't even imagine it. I mean, sh- should we be amending the Constitution to reflect the massive changes that have happened since Lincoln's time more often than perhaps we have? Great question, and let's begin by remembering the amendments that we've actually had because here's a key point. They've added to liberty and equality and haven't taken away from liberty and equality. We added a Bill of Rights, and then we ended slavery and promised um, blacks um, uh, political rights and, and civil rights, and then we enfranchised women, and we democratized the Senate. And in our lifetime, or at least mine, we got rid of poll tax disenfranchisement. We gave 18-year-olds the vote. We've added to liberty and equality, and that that's and it didn't stop with the Civil War. It's in the 20th century. I lived through some of those. Now let's do it again, once more with feeling. But now we actually know what direction we're supposed to go in, in. the direction of more liberty, more equality. There's only been one amendment that took away liberty and equality. That was prohibition. Didn't work so well. So one side says we should have an amendment that says marriage is one man, one woman only. We should have an amendment taking away the First Amendment and saying flag burning is unconstitutional uh, or illegal or um, corporations can't um, have political expression. No, we should not restrict the First Amendment. We should expand the First Amendment. We should expand equality. Our amendments in the future should move in the direction, the same direction as the amendments of the past. The arc of history is bending toward justice, but we should study the past amendments so we figure out what worked, what didn't, and what 
direction we need but, to go in. But but is the is the most present arc of history bending towards surveillance, toward toward a nation of fear because of those foreign entanglements, because of the communication structures that we have now? I, yes, I I think we can all agree more liberty is a good thing. But we've given up some of our liberties not too terribly long ago because of fears of things that we didn't fear before. Brilliant question. Here's, if you asked me what has really made America free in our history, people would say the Bill of Rights, but as Randy said before, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, wasn't in fact enforced by courts for a long time. Here's what made America free for most of our history. This is, this is chapter one of the book that you were nicely mentioned, America's Constitution and Biography. Here's what made America free. For the first 150 years, we had no standing army in peacetime. We had no military-industrial complex in peacetime, and that, and we had vast oceans that protected us from the thugs um, of the old world, um, uh, Asia and, 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 and Europe. And in the last 60 years, you know, from um, um, uh, basically Rose, uh, um, um, uh, uh, when Eisenhower basically, you know, tells us as he leaves office, I'm leaving you a vast military-industrial complex that I, Ike, didn't have, you know, when I grew up. And that's a totally different world. Ike was speaking the truth. Today, we do have a vast military-industrial surveillance complex of a sort that the founders didn't have, and that is a new reality. So I agree with you that these are things that we need to think very seriously about because the founders didn't have that, actually. There's no, I'll say it again, no significant standing army in peacetime for the first 150 years of our tradition. And and we were basically safe from foreign thugs. Before 9-11, the last time foreigners drew blood on American soil in the heartland was the War of 1812. Um, you know, and in World War II, it was only Pearl Harbor, but now it's 9-11. It's in the heartland because the world is a lot smaller. Our oceans don't protect us nearly so much. We have intercontinental missiles, um, and we have a vast military-industrial complex, and those are all new factors. You're absolutely right. Those are things we need to think about. Rennie? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of surveillance, I mean, I think it's important to point out that the kind of surveillance that is possible today, the founders could not have imagined, right? I mean, it's simply beyond what I think most people at that time would even have how would it be possible to or, know? Or as the professor suggests, even the need for that surveillance, right? There, exactly. there wouldn't be a need to surveil the population to, to wonder whether or not there are uh, sleeper cells from foreign uh, tyrants inside your country right. because there, there wasn't that threat. Or the technology that makes it possible, right? In other words, the other side of this is the technology and what it allows and what it permits, uh, both in terms, you know, for both good and bad. So I think, you know, I think it's it's important to... to you know why I think context is so important when we when we discuss these things. I, I want to get to Aaron, who's calling from New Britain. Hi, Aaron. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about the terrorist watch list and how it was used to prevent individuals from getting access to firearms and what kind of implication that would have on, say, constitutional rights in general, since the Second Amendment is in our Bill of Rights. How? What kind of precedent does that set for the government to say if they want to use that for, say, the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth or any of them, for that matter? Uh, Aaron, thank you very much for your question. And Professor Amar, Aaron's talking about you know this this recent notion that we have these terrorism watch lists, whether or not you'd be able to keep someone from uh, from buying a gun because they're on a terrorism watch list is something that is certainly being debated right now in Hartford and in and in Washington. 
They're, it's a spectacularly good question, and I think the issues really are in part issues of due process and not merely the, the Second Amendment, just even on a no-fly list. Suppose you're on that list and, and you think there's been a mistake made. Um, so, um, And one question is, well, if, if you can be prevented from flying, can you be prevented from having a gun? And as I said, I think the big issues um, are especially issues of procedure. How do you go about um, uh, making a case that you, maybe your, your inclusion on the list is a mistake? stake. Um, if uh, your audience is interested, I think there were interesting pieces that have been written about this by Noah Feldman, um, who's a professor at Harvard, um, and by Eugene Volokh, V-O-L-O-K-H, who's a conservative uh, professor at UCLA. Um, the, these pieces are easily available on the web, um, Bloomberg um, and, and the Washington Post, and they've both written interestingly on no-fly lists and, in effect, no-gun lists. We're talking with Akhil Amar, whose book is America's Constitution, a biography. He joins us today from Yale University. Rennie Falco joins us from Trinity College in our studio right now. You can continue this conversation. Email us where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the show, we're talking about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it's changed over the years. Rennie Falco is here. She's Associate Professor of Legal and Policy Studies at Trinity College. Akhil Reed Amar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. His book is called America's Constitution, A Biography. On Twitter, Dan Clow, a lawyer who periodically joins us on our show, writes about a question that I've asked you already, uh, Professor Amar, about how the Constitution should be interpreted. He wants you to answer this. Does he believe, as Justice Scalia does, that a judge's job is to ascertain the original public meaning if the constitutional provision is at issue in any particular case? Essentially, he's getting to Scalia's argument of original public meaning of the Constitution. So Justice Scalia talks a good game, but he doesn't do it. Um, Amen. And... uh, uh, and, um, and liberals should be careful thinking that just because Scalia says it has to be wrong. That's not true. The most important originalist of the twentieth uh, of the modern era is not Robert Bork, who was my teacher, or Clarence Thomas, who was my friend, or uh, Justice Scalia, who talks a good game um, but doesn't do it, or Ed Meese. The most important originalist of the modern era is named Hugo Lafayette Black. He's the subject of actually a chapter of my most recent book, The Law of the Land. He's FDR's first appointee to the court. He goes around um, always carrying a copy of the Constitution with him. 
and he's a great liberal crusader. He's the backbone of the Warren Court, and he believes that actually if you take the Constitution seriously, it means free speech, it means racial equality, it means one person, one vote, it means rights for criminal defendants, and especially counsel rights for uh, criminal defendants, it means religious equality, it means applying the Bill of Rights against the states, and he was right about all of that. And that's the Warren Court. And we shouldn't lightly give up, actually, um, uh, what pe- people died for to put in the, into the Constitution uh, certain uh, provisions. Um, uh, that said, a lot of what courts do has to go beyond, not against, but beyond the original meaning because the original meaning only gets you so far. It just doesn't answer all sorts of questions about how you actually cash out freedom of speech. It means government can't shut down political uh, opposition, but there are a whole bunch of different ways that courts could implement and operationalize these these core ideas. So original meaning, original intent are important um, things. They're not the only thing. I'm going to plug one more book. It's called America's Unwritten Constitution, because it's um, a 500-page answer to Justice Scalia. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Rennie, you were, you were exclaiming yeah. before while, while he was talking? Right, because I think, I mean, on some level, um, I, I guess when I, you know, when I teach this to undergraduates, I'm not, I'm not teaching law students, and, and when I want them, you know, to, to kind of, you know, put their feet into this kind of a debate and try to understand it, and that's why I would recommend Professor Amir's, Amar's work to them. Um, I, I think that, that in a way it's a false dichotomy. I mean to say that there is only one way and there's only one rule as though somehow that one rule is going to prevent anybody from what uh, imposing their own personal views if you can somehow latch on to that one way of thinking about what the Constitution originally meant or what the framers meant or Whatever, whatever version of that you want, I think I think it's a false dichotomy to say it's either that or a living constitution. I think that that when judges interpret, I think I think it's a much more complicated matter. Uh, let's get to one more quick phone call here, John in New Fairfield. Hi, John. Go ahead. Yes, my question is really: uh, Can we look at a constitutional convention instead of specific items that you're discussing today? I mean, things have changed a heck of a lot since. Uh, 1790, uh, including uh, having judges on the Supreme Court for life and having uh, representatives elected for two-year terms where they spend most of their time raising money rather than working in the uh, legislature. Well, they, yeah, the, the the whole change, uh, Ernie Falco, and, and thank you, John, for your phone call, that change in, in what the legislator does that is that is an enormous change, right? You, you spend two years uh, in the office, but what you're doing during those two years now compared to many, many years ago is, is, is quite a different thing. It gets to one of the questions I want to ask you about, maybe uh, some of the changes that we could think about for the future, the way in which we uh, apportion senators, for instance, the way in which we actually look at the Congress. you have any thoughts about that, Rennie? Yeah, I guess I'm somebody who is a little bit nervous about fundamentally changing the Constitution. Um, I, 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 think, I think we have to give that very serious thought. And on, on the practical level, I'm not sure that you would have the kind of consensus you need to actually bring about any of these changes, right? If you're talking about amending the Constitution, that, that takes a lot of consensus. And I think we're living in a period right now where we don't have that. And again, I tend to be skeptical about 
fundamental changes to the document. We just have a couple of minutes left, Professor Amar, but you know, I was reading back a piece that you wrote on the 225th uh, birthday of the U.S. Constitution, talking about some of the potential makeovers for it and, and some of the things that you and others have written about or talked about is is the way in which we um, actually have a legislature, how, how we uh, vote in an electoral college or not. What are some big changes, maybe to address what John was talking about, specifically about lawmakers, how may, how they make the laws, how long a term they serve, that sort of thing? Should we be looking at opening up the door on some of these things? So it's a great question. I agree with Rennie that ours is a deeply divided society, and amendments are difficult, and so it's going to be very difficult to get consensus on certain things when we are such a deeply divided and, and closely divided society. That said, I do think since we've been talking about stuff that happened 225 years ago and 150 years ago and 100 years ago, women's suffrage, we should try to think about what world we want to give um, to our great-great-grandchildren 100 years from now, 200 years from now. Um, we can be framers of the future. Um, history, a lot of history has yet to be written, and so here's how we should do it. Um, first, we should look at the amendments, uh, and this is actually the last chapter of America's unwritten constitution. It's called America's unfinished constitution. It's what the constitution of the future um, of America and the world should look like. Here are three points that I make. One, Let's look at the amendments that we've already adopted, which ones worked, um, which ones didn't, prohibition. And I say our amendments should add to liberty and equality, not take away from liberty and equality because that's what we've done in the past. Second, both parties are going to need to be on board <coughs> for any amendment because you can't get something through without two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states or some constitutional convention. Both parties are going to need to be on board, so we have to figure out something that both parties could agree to. Third, Let's look at states because state constitutions have always been um, basically the farm system, um, the breeding ground of um, great new ideas, the laboratories of democratic experimentation. Almost everything in our existing constitution, states did first. States had written constitutions first. States had three branches of government and bicameralism and jury trial and judicial review and bills of rights. States put their constitution to a vote, Massachusetts and New Hampshire, so the federal constitution did. States, many of them got rid of slavery first. They let women vote first. They let blacks vote first. So let Let's look at what states do, and that may provide us some ideas. Here are a couple of ideas that actually pass the test. It's possible to imagine direct election of the president because that's how we pick governors. States don't have electoral colleges. It adds to liberty and equality. It's one person, one vote. That's an equal idea. So states have done it with their governors. Um, it adds to equality. And actually, both parties might be in favor of it because, in fact, the Democrats believe in one person, one vote as a principle. And the Republicans may come to see that the Electoral College is beginning to tip against them. It's possible that they could actually win a popular vote and lose the Electoral College this, this time around. And if that happens, a reverse push v. Gore, they're going to be in favor of that. Here's another one that maybe both parties would be in favor of. Someone who's not born a citizen on the day of his birth, but who comes here and contributes a lot to society 40 years later, 30 years later, should be eligible for president. Both parties might be in favor of this. Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was eligible to be governor of, of California. Jennifer Granholm in, 
in um, uh, um, in Michigan. Michigan. So so we do it for governors. Um, Both parties might be in favor of it because the Republicans have their Henry Kissingers and their Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the the Democrats have their Jennifer Granholms and Madeleine Albrights and it adds to equality. It makes our system more open and free. It might be the Republican alternative to the Democrats' Dream Act. I'll tell you one person who actually introduced such a constitutional amendment 10 years ago. You'll be shocked. His name is Orrin Hatch, conservative Republican from Utah. He actually believes in this. And eventually, the Republicans are going to realize they have to have their version of immigration reform, and this might be part of it. They're going to say, we want a fence. We want a big fence. We want an electrified fence. Did we mention we want a fence? Um, But if you come legally and you play by the rules and you contribute, yes, we'll let you be president of the United States. That's our version of the DREAM Act. Yeah, and a fence that Mexico will pay for. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) So, Rennie, how about you? I mean, I think these are some, some very good ideas, things that we could reasonably do that also have potentially some bipartisan support. What are some other things you might take a crack at changing, Rennie? Um, take a crack at changing in the Constitution. Again, I think, I, I think I'm a little nervous. I don't disagree with any of the proposals that Professor Amar suggested. And I do think of, of all of them, I think direct election of the president would, would be very important for a variety of reasons because it would change actually the way we do presidential elections. Uh, we wouldn't all be scurrying to Iowa and New Hampshire mm-hmm. in the freezing cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there would be – if we had direct election, I think that the primaries would be different. And I think that the so-called base of both parties uh, might recede a little bit more into the background. And I mm-hmm. think that people might have to talk about very different things. So I think of all of them, that to me would be one of the most important. But, and there's, and there's, Here, here's ahead, one please. more, yeah. e- 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 ERA. Um, you know, it's already in there. In effect, there's 14th Amendment says equality, but let's say it again once more with feeling. I think both parties, the reasonable people in both parties, might be in favor of an equal rights amendment for um, um, uh, on the basis of sex. Uh, uh, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, who joins us often on the program from Quinnipiac, tweets, I'd like to see an affirmative right to vote added to the Constitution, yes. a Voting Rights right. Act. So what do you say to that? I like it. We have five provisions of the Constitution already that use the words right to vote, the 14th Amendment, Section 2, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, the 24th and 26th Amendments. But let's say it again once more with feeling. But note that this um, idea of of hers, it's a really good one, begins by looking at what we already have. Remember I said Mm -hmm. one of the things I want us to see is how the amendments that we've adopted in the past have added to equality. They haven't taken away. That's why I had an allergic reaction when people are trying to prevent corporations from running ads or something. I want more free speech. Each, not less. Uh, Akhil Rita Mar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. He joined us today from the Yale University studios. The book that we've been referencing uh, throughout this hour is America's Constitution, a Biography. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It was a lively conversation. This is great. It was an honor to be with you and with Rennie. Thank you. And Rennie Falco is an Associate Professor of Legal and Policy Studies at Trinity College right here in Hartford. Rennie, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you, and read the book. And, you know, you can continue this conversation at wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also continue to tweet us at where we live. Our program today was produced by Sarah Flaherty with help from Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Katie Talarski is the executive producer of Where We Live. And thanks to Amanda Gallagher and Stephanie Reef. Continue this conversation at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. 